This is for the nerds, this is for the brainiacs, this is what we deserve. Go ahead and play it back, know that I know. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another edition of the Solve for Why vlogcast. This is episode number 37, season two. And today I'm joined by a very special guest who I am going to introduce shortly. But first, I want to get a little house cleaning out of the way. Uh, just a quick reminder, Landon Tice did his first piece of content for us this past weekend. It was a mastermind on monotone boards. He'll be doing a follow-up office hours this Saturday. So if you are a member and you have some questions you'd like to ask him, that'll be at 4 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, he's going to be on there for about 90 minutes taking any Q&A that you may have. Uh, secondly, as always, we have a new Poker Out Loud every single Monday. There are three episodes out right now. Episode four will be out this coming Monday, followed by an On Second Thought the Monday thereafter. Finally, it's taken a year, almost a year and a half, but we finally have launched our free site, uh, which you can sign up for now at tv.solferwide.io. Inside that free site is a curriculum called uh, Quick Studies. It's a whiteboard series that is meant to be short, entertaining, and to the point of game theory principles and uh, live poker antics that should help you with your game. Uh, we have a quick tease for what that's gonna look like. Whatever range that you would apply to the button also applied under the- Are you bored? It's like well-constructed. I'm bored, and I don't even exist. Studying poker does not have to be so tedious. Through simple and entertaining whiteboard animation, we can teach you the ins and outs of becoming a profitable player. And whether it's poker, fitness, or fighting a bear, <laughs> knowing where to begin can be overwhelming. You need guidance. You need a trainer. Quick Studies is broken down into six courses, each building upon the last so that the concepts are clear, consistent, and accessible. Why suffer through the noise of a million different sources when you can stick to a streamlined path and level up at your own pace? And you know what the best part is? It's free. That's the one and only Chris Convalinka. If you guys want to see more from him, head over to Sulphur TV and check out the Quick Studies course. Also, he was our guest on last week's vlogcast. Be sure to check that out. It was a really deep and powerful conversation. Today, we have another young up-and-comer. We'll call him the star of the previous, uh, or the, this current season of Poker Out Loud. And uh, someone that I met just about a year ago, um, shockingly not through Landon, despite the fact that you guys are pretty close, one and only Jeremiah Williams. All right, Berkey, I, uh, you know, I appreciate being on the show. Uh, yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I see you came in your uh, best big Lebowski attire. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just a, it's a comfortable shirt. <laughs> Are you even familiar with that movie? No, no. Really? You've never no. seen The Big Lebowski? No. I highly recommend. All right. It's, All this right. is a must-see. I, I know it's a little bit dated for you, but I promise you, as far as like quote-unquote old-timey movies go, this uh, one's it. No, I do appreciate a good old movie. But uh, yeah, maybe I'll watch it. Yeah, definitely have to check that out. Um, okay, so I, I kind of want to start at present day and work our way backwards. I mean, mm. Lord knows we're covering a lot that happened, I guess, probably in like a five-year span for you. Yeah. It's always so weird to interview you guys that are so young and so accomplished because it's like, oh, tell me about your come-up story. You're like, well, 18 months ago, I was in high school and broke and decided to fire up an online game. And now here I am, seven figures later, just uh, crushing the world. Well, you know, I am 22, but uh, so it might seem weird. But for me, it has been feels like it's been like a long time in poker, kind of. Like, I feel almost like an old-timey uh, player at this <laughs> point. Like, this is, uh, I believe, professional year. This is like my sixth year playing. So. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I think I started when I was sixteen, and now I'm twenty-two. Okay, getting kind of old in the poker space, at least six years. Like guys like Landon have only been playing for two years. It's kind of crazy to me. That is true. He he definitely found the way to to fast track everything. Yeah. Uh, well, let's start at the end and work our way back to the beginning. So, currently speaking, like, what stakes are you playing? Is it more live, more online? What's what's your background? What's your focus? Yeah. So I mean, I'm a for people that don't know me, I'm a live slash online po poker player in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. For the last like three or four years, I'd say I've primarily been an online poker player and playing some live. 
And but I originally did start playing poker as a live player and then transitioned into online after a couple of years. But uh current day I play like anywhere from five ten to hundred, two hundred. Really just depends on what's available to me. This is live or WSOP or ACR. That's uh mostly playing live poker at the Bellagio. And I just kinda of go between those three places. And I, I heard a is. uh I heard a fun hand history from the ten twenty forty game. Between mm-hmm. you and old timey reg knock, where you guys got an infinite big blinds with uh, you had the kings, yes, which is very risky of you. A good hands, very risky. Uh, as knock is a very well known knit, and uh, he had half of the aces, he had the ace 10, I believe. Yes, it was ace 10 suited. Okay, uh, how could you win? No, yeah, you, you just can't win with 65%. <laughs> you just can't win. But, yeah. How many blinds did you guys get in? I think it was like 450 each or 500 each. I don't know. I've, I've seen, it seems like there's been a few hands like that at the Bellagio. And you got scooped if I if I Yeah. Remember. Okay. But, you know, it's just one hand. It's just so funny because I heard, the, I heard the, the hand, obviously. And I know mm-hmm. both of you very well. And I'm just like, it's so hilarious to me that knock decides to lose his mind against the one guy at the table who like isn't out of line right like of course you have a bluffing range and especially at that depth like you're gonna find the correct hands to to kind of go for it with it uh but you know getting in 450 big blinds is difficult and against somebody who's just not gonna show up with jacks ever mm-hmm. it becomes even worse i don't know it's just one hand i, I assume he had a a read based on like how i looked at my cards oh, yeah, or something like he must have just had a i don't know but you know sometimes you just go with the hand but you can you're wrong you can but handle the swings i assume yeah yeah it's not that's no, nothing new it's uh yeah <laughs> not gonna break you what's fine <laughs> uh what, what is the most memorable or largest pot that you've played oh man uh well definitely an online pot which might be weird for someone who's played a lot of high stakes live but it was a. Uh, January of this year, uh, it was like 115k pot on WSOP.com, playing uh, 100 200 heads up against Jared Plesnick. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was like a really standard hand though. Like, it's just it was memorable because I think it was the biggest pot I've ever played in my career. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was just calling a four bet with ace queen and then calling down a seven two. Like, really standard hand, but I guess standard that'd be from it. your side. That would be it. From his side, no. Definitely yeah, yeah, not standard, but... I'm expecting like some 9-10 or some nonsense yeah. like that. He just 4-bet King-Queen-0, oh, okay. check back, flop, bet turn, and then like 2.5x pot the river. Mm-hmm. A7-2-6-6. Uh, other than that, not too many memorable hands. I mean, there's memorable hands, but... Oh, I did play a 100k pot one time in a live game where I had Ace-Queen off all in pre-flop against the 10-8 off. Wow. That time I was scooped. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got what you deserved ace queen's yeah. never good there come on no no, no. you just you just don't win <laughs> that's insane what stakes but, are you playing uh that was 100 200 400 okay so a little bit more reasonable to put in like 100 blinds with yeah ace queen, I, I think those two are my biggest pots ever actually one one and lost one <laughs> you know what doyle says ace queen's a trouble hand it is actually I you probably don't know is. that because you probably never read super system no i know i never read that one <laughs> I did read, uh, I remember when I was starting out when I was like 16, I read the Dan on the Ground of Small Ball book. Coincidentally, I never read that because <laughs> to me, Small Ball seemed like torture. Yes. And I just didn't want anything to do with people talking about betting small and checking a bunch and all this other bullshit. <laughs> ahead of your time. Yeah, way, way ahead of its time. Um, so you recently got to play Poker After Dark. I had the pleasure mm-hmm. of joining you. You had the Jesus seat. Yes. Uh, what, what was that experience like? Did you watch it much growing up or... Oh, yeah, absolutely. I watched it growing up. That was like uh, my first memories of finding out about poker. I was probably like, I don't know how many years old, watching uh, Poker After Dark with uh, my grandpa or High Stakes Poker, either one of those shows. Mm -hmm. So being like 21 now and like getting the chance to get invited and go play on Poker After Dark was like really nice. It was was very, uh, very exciting. It was a fun lineup. It was. To say the least. I think we were playing 51 or allegedly. It was not 51. 51. And then it was four seats of the six or seven of us that always straddled, giving you the button every time that it was quadruple straddled. Yes. And I was in the small blind, which was torture. <laughs> <laughs> you folded zero times. 
No. I got to I got to steal the straddle exactly zero times. I think I got to play almost never. And uh, you were punished accordingly for getting to have position in this lucrative spot. Yeah, I don't think I won money on that game. Well, kind of broke even. Well, you folded a good hand against board. Yes, on the queens. The, on the king high board, I think. And uh, you got... No, you wrecked Scott Ball on one where you fought the set. Thank yeah. God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Put the money to good use, you know. Really took it out of mm-hmm. the hands of the criminals. We like that. Um, so I guess, like, as far as crowning achievement goes, I would assume that that's, like, pretty high as far as, like, ticking off uh, a bullet point on your resume. Have you played... You haven't had a chance to play a World Series yet, have you? No, no. Uh, I'm not a live one, at least. Yeah. Oh, you rolled enough last summer to play the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. But I don't know if that really counts. It's I'm, different. Yeah. I'm really excited for the live one this year. It's Are you going to put in, like, big volume? Oh, yeah. I don't, I'm just going to play the main. just going to play cash games every day. It's going to be great. <laughs> so you're only playing great. one tournament? Yeah, yeah. Really? Or maybe, no, I'll probably... If there's, like, a heads-up event, which I assume there is, I'll there play that be. one, too. Yeah. Also, I'll play two tournaments. That's it? That's the plan, yeah. Bro. I'm really excited. What do you mean? Fire! <laughs> no, no, no. 45 events on the no. schedule. Add some PLO. Add some Badoogie. Let's go. We need these bracelets. I don't know. I'm not just I'm just not much of a tournament player. I understand it. I know there's a lot of money to be won in it. There's prestige to be won in it. But uh I don't know. I'm just more of a cash game guy. From from the perspective of like your generation, do you think that the bracelets are just completely washed at this point? Like meaningless? I mean, I've personally, I mean, it just depends on person to person what you want, I suppose. Uh, for me, I don't really, like, never really felt much uh, excitement to just the thought of, like, winning the bracelet. Yeah. It's winning the tournament. I guess it's a nice, you just, you know, you win the most money of anyone, you win the tournament, you get first place, you feel good about yourself. Yeah. The bracelet itself isn't so big, but. I think the problem is, maybe this isn't a problem, it's just a, a, an observation, but your generation is so acutely sensitive to what this game actually is, where you guys are so aware of all the variants involved, and you're so aware that winners are often just chosen by the deck, and that it's really about showing up and implementing day in and day out, and like that's gonna be who is capable of proving their win rate. That winning a tournament is just like the dumbest fucking thing on earth. Or it's just like, yeah, it feels good, but like I got picked that day yeah. kind of thing. You're just uh, the chosen one for yeah. this thousand hands. Yeah, yeah, that's that's something we actually talk about at the academy. Where, um, you know, when you're when you're analyzing MTT strategy, you're really a- analyzing like what's the best way to navigate from start to finish over the course of somewhere between 500 and 1,000 hands dealt, and that's pretty mm-hmm. wild when you think about it, right? If like you're playing a three-day event, you're talking about trying to find the subset of hands that you need to play profitably enough over the course of 1,000 hands in order to win. It's just mm-hmm. like, how can anyone have an edge? <laughs> Right? Like, how big of an edge could you possibly derive in the 150, 200 hands that you choose to play? It's tough to say. No one really, uh, not many people really have great estimates on, like, ROI. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's a tough thing to know. It's not something I'm well-versed in. Yeah, it's a weird thing because I think it's obvious where people are losing and not so clear where people are winning. Yeah. Especially in those, like, small field tournaments at the Aria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's just, like, I don't really know. Like, most of the time... It's tough to tell what the edge is coming from unless you're like very right. elite and well studied at yeah, and I mean sizes. That, that's kind of the thing. Even the even the quote unquote fun players in those events, they can't be giving up that much. We're only mm-hmm. talking about a couple hundred hands. It's a one day event. Yeah, but yeah, I guess time will tell. We do see a lot of the same faces in the winner circle. Then again, we see a lot of the same mm-hmm. faces in the field. So I guess to some degree, that's just going to be the nature of the beast. Mm-hmm. I'm with you, man. Let's let's take the cash. Let's. Cash games are great. Let's change the minimum buy-in to 500 big blinds, no cap. Like, <laughs> let's put some people in some weird spots. I, I, like, I want to see the squirming, you know? Deep Stack, it's a no-limit hold'em. It's a great game. It's a speaking, great game. Speaking of Deep Stack, no-limit hold'em, uh, you were gracious enough to join us on Poker Out Loud. Yes. What did you think of that experience? Uh, it was a fun time. It was a show I had seen like on YouTube, like many others. Uh, never really thought I'd get to play on it. Uh, I did get to play on it. It was uh, a lot of fun. Uh, explaining like thought processes is, is something that I'm like, I feel pretty good about. So it was like kind of natural. Uh, it was just a good experience. You're so concise in your explanation. Like on one hand, I really appreciate it because the brevity of it all is just like, well, there's just nothing else to say here. Like he just nailed it. But then on the other hand, I'm just like, 
how the fuck is he just so certain in every spot that like he doesn't even need to talk his thoughts out it's just like oh could three bet could call Uh, i'm gonna go with a three bet this time and that's it you just move forward uh did you find yourself in like any pickles or any like head scratching scenarios where you tried to to lean on something else to make a decision uh probably in a couple hands where I had a uh, pocket fours against Chris Convalinkas. I don't know if this hand is aired right now, but uh, it hasn't. But you can talk about it. I had a. It was like a limp three raise pot blind on blind, like king ten eight queen. I think on the turn. Yeah. And I just had pocket fours, and it's not really. It's just a spot where you don't really have any bluffs, and it's hard to just find bluffs. And it's also conversely because it's hard to find bluffs. It's like maybe out of position could overfold. Uh, so I just made an ambitious play that Chris Convalinka ended up folding ace king, which I was a bit surprised about. I mean, that was kind of like a live, like feel based play that like, I guess you could say something like that. Uh, oh, there's a call down with tens against Lynn on like a four straight three flush river. And that was just kind of because I knew she was calling two wide preflop would probably end up over bluffing, not giving up like the correct miss flush draws. Yeah. Uh, some, sometimes you like, you do use like live, ele- like, uh, just like live reads or live elements. It's important to have like a well-based, like a uh, base of knowledge. And then in a situation, be able to divert from that yeah. based on the information presented. Yeah. I, I think people may have a little bit of a misunderstanding of like the framework that GTO presents, uh, in the sense that, you know, we're always leaning on these game theory principles, whether it's at the the macro level where it's just range versus range comparison, or we get like more so down to the micro level where we look at the components of our hand and say, how does this interact with the deck, the board, our potential, our our opponent's potential holdings, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that is necessary to utilize in your decision-making process, but it's easy to kind of get lost in the, in, in the details and let it all wash over you where you overweight something. Whereas the most important factor when it's all said and done is your opponent's counter strategy. And if at any given point you can just identify simply that they are too wide or too tight in the spot, the deviations become so utterly clear and the micro analysis of like the blockers in your hand or, or the board texture or anything like that kind of go out the window, mm-hmm. right? It's so much more critical to just be like, well, they just have way too many hands on this type of texture. Therefore, they're naturally going to have too many bluffs and they're capable of bluffing. So my bluff catching region just like expands by a magnitude of whatever I think they're overbluffing by. Um, and, and I think that those heuristics really start to shine whenever you're put into a decision point like that and you have to explain your thoughts out loud. So neither of those hands have aired yet. I'm kind of interested to see, or to hear, I should say, uh, how elaborate you get in in your thinking on those spots. With those spots, right? Like right now, how I feel about those spots? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the... F- Four forehand, it was a spot where there's five ten with a big blind ante. Chris limps the small blind, which uh, it's just a spot where with the big blind ante you need to limp very wide, and then conversely that means you need to limp re raise. So it's tough to say. I was I would say originally like when Chris limp re raises to I believe I made it forty and he made it two hundred. Mm-hmm. That's like a spot that is under bluffed. Yep. It's just it's just very difficult to find these like limp re raise bluffs. And it's not a spot that I think he's well studied in or most people are well studied in. So my read preflop is just, oh, this guy's probably under bluffing. Therefore, like when the board comes out, like king, 10, eight, queen, that's pretty, and he checks twice. Mm-hmm. It's probably that he has like a 10 or a queen or like just some kind of hand that doesn't want to face like two big bets. Yeah, yeah. So then yeah. it's, you know, so if, if in theory, it's like if two players have, like a act like a well-constructed range there on the turn like bluffing with all the pairs deuces through sevens you could easily be over bluffing mm-hmm. but because of like the live element of this hand like doesn't matter if you're over bluffing here no it's gonna work like, yeah assuming your read is correct yeah, yeah. So, like i also think that in real time you probably don't choose all of those hands yeah like no. i i think that you run this a lot less with sevens and sixes than you would with like fives or deuces yeah absolutely i think i would just pure do like deuces through fours and mm-hmm. fives maybe yeah but, yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah it could be easy to over bluff yeah and honestly i talked to chris a little bit about it like it just kind of shows uh that this is an area that he hasn't studied all that often mm. because these types of textures 
um, once you start to dig through Sims, you do realize that like small pairs actually become like your your yeah. first to reach, right? Yeah. It's like, well, we don't really have any no pair hands, so we have to go with our lowest showdown value hands that are pair. And it's always going to be these small pocket pairs. Right. And I think that, again, that doubles back to like not overvaluing the the general principles of game theory where it's like, uh, we want blockers, we want removal. And it's like, yeah, we do want those things when they're convenient, but there are just going to be certain aspects where like we won't have that available to us and we still need to construct a bluffing range. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So pivoting a little bit now that we're we're kind of like working backwards, tell me a little bit about like your come up. I know that you did uh, a lot of lobby sitting in global. I know that you kind of ran those streets for the better part of a year or two, did some streaming, uh, I guess, like, talk to me about that process, what it was like, um, both coming up from, I'm not even sure where you started. Yeah. I know where you ended. <laughs> uh, so, like, rising through the ranks on kind of, you know, a relatively untrafficked site, as well as, like, streaming for an audience that uh, may not have known you prior. Yeah. Well, I mean, just where to, where to begin? It feels like a... Yeah, it's been a long time with poker. So I started playing about six years ago, and I was a live player originally for the first couple of years. I was playing in these like shady home games in Illinois when I was like 16. I just dropped out of school, I was just like all in with like no idea like really how to play poker, but somehow just winning in these one-two games like right, right off the bat. And I just uh, kind of went all in with the goal of like just becoming a great poker player, studying like basically just dedicated my life to it, got really obsessed with poker, didn't really do anything, and uh, started online soon after. I remember I was, like, winning in, like, Live 2.5 for, like, a year, and I, everyone had always talked about how, like, live players suck, like, you need to play online if you want to get good, so I was like, okay, like, start playing online, 10 cent, 20 cent. Uh, I think I got online on Global Poker in, like, 2017, and I started at, like, 10 cent, 20 cent, and at the time, like, if you played on Global Poker in 2017 or 2018, like, those are those are glory days on global poker. It was crazy. It was just a great time to move up. So a lot of online poker players in America like came out from global back then. Okay. And I think I got I went from like ten cent twenty cents like ten twenty within like less than a year, which was like insane. Was it was it a natural linear progression? Like your bankroll actually grew that allowed you to move through the stakes, or were you kind of just like saying fuck it? I know where my <laughs> skill level lies, and I'm gonna really press edges. Yeah, uh, I had like a bit of a bankroll from lives. So, like I started at ten cent, twenty cent, not really because that's where my bankroll like demanded. It was just more like I don't know where my skill set is. So moving up, I would just play like some people just when they're moving up, they play like they might play like two hundred k hands at a limit and be like, should I move up now? It's like come on, if you're winning at a good rate, you're like wasting your time not moving up. So I moved up fairly quick. I would just play like long enough to know am I plus EV in this pool by a good margin? Yes, go up. I remember getting to like one two pretty quickly, and then there was like a jump to five ten, and then like another jump to ten twenty. But yeah, back back then the games were just so good. I don't even necessarily. I, I always followed like fairly responsible bankroll management. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would take shots with live, but online poker has always been really, really just. You know, do you have like fifty blinds? Yes, like play. Okay, okay. So I mean, like that. That's way different than my come up story, which I think is basically reflective of why I always refer to you as, as the adult of the group when it comes to this young collection of uh, up and comers. Like you just always strike me as very responsible. And I guess honestly, like if you're telling me that you dropped out at school at 16 to pursue mm-hmm. such endeavors, uh, there is some level of burden on your shoulders, I would imagine to ensure that you succeed. So like what, I guess first and foremost, what was your your mother's reaction to this decision? Oh, oh my God, she was. I mean, she was horrified. She was like a teacher at my high school. Like, yeah, but uh, you know, I was just like, I'm gonna show you through my actions that it's all gonna be fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then it did. I mean, thankfully, I guess. But I like to think that I made it happen. Yeah, of course. Obviously, you're you're more in control mm-hmm. yeah. of that than than we'd like to believe. Uh. And you already had experience, right? Like, so I imagine you were missing a ton of school already because of your Pokemon prowess. Yes. Yes, I was. <laughs> Always was. Okay. Tell me a little bit about that. And then we'll circle back to the global poker days. Like what, what exact, for those of us who don't know, uh, what is Pokemon? 
uh, uh, outside of the cartoon. I understand it's a cartoon, but well, there is a card game and there's a video game. Okay. There's tournaments that like are run by the Pokemon company that are quite popular for a card game and the video game. So it's been around for like over 20 years, maybe like 25 years. And uh, so I got into that at age four with my parents. My dad got really big obsessed with it. And it was just something that I kept up with for like, I think I played ages four to 18 or four to 17. I quit a couple of years into poker or so as soon as poker started getting like real serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I just took Pokemon like really seriously. I would travel across the country. I've been everywhere pretty much for Pokemon, which like was insane kind of growing up. Uh, so I was already missing a lot of school, but I had all these like uh, great experiences in Pokemon, like competing. I think just like growing up competing in like serious nature is good. Yeah. Uh, so I was always kind of thinking like about the game, like trying to be the game's best player, working on that. Uh, so like when I transitioned to poker, it was kind of the same goal. I remember discovering poker. I was like, wow, like this is a game you can make money at. What am I doing? Like I'm playing Pokemon. Yeah. Uh, Conversely, though, because I did get into poker and I was about 16 and I just hopped into 1-2, Pokemon is actually how I was able to do that. I already had, like, a bankroll for 1-2. Yeah, so, like, I guess, tell me a little bit about, like, how fruitful these tournaments were. Like, what were the prize pools like? And then, uh, as far as comparing the two games, how how much variance is involved in Pokemon? Like, how much skill is involved? Is it uh, a game that's kind of principled through game theory also? Like, how did you go about being so good? Uh, I was debatably one of the best pokemon players i never won the world championship i believe i got ninth twice i got like a second nationals i won some other tournaments but uh if you won like the world championship nowadays that'd be like 25k oh wow if you won a national championship would you go to four year uh it's 10k and a regional championship they say would be 5k and then like smaller for like down to top eight or 32 or whatever it is Mm -hmm. uh so that's pretty, I mean, I pretty much just had money as like a 15 year old. <laughs> I was able to just play one, two and two, five. Yeah. So that was a uh, grateful. I'm very grateful for that actually. Cause it's very difficult to grind up from like one cent, two cent truly with like a hundred dollars. Like, yeah, it helps I, I honestly have... don't know how people do it. I, yeah. I know there are these stories of people who free roll their way into like six figure bankrolls and stuff like that. But the amount of patience and, uh, I guess almost disregard for what your time is worth mm-hmm. to me just seems crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's much better to just have a few K and start in some soft like live one two games. Yeah. But, yeah. Um so that, as far as like comparing the two game types, uh like how do you think about Pokemon versus versus poker? Well Pokemon is definitely nowhere near as complex as poker, but there's still uh, it's similar in some ways where there's just uh, like a it's kind of like some hidden knowledge with like some luck but mostly skill and if you're like a great player you might win like sixty, seventy percent of the time. You have a lot of edge and you're creating your own deck using like picking which card like a deck of 60 cards so you have a lot of edge in picking the best 60 cards predicting like what people are going to play like how to beat that but at the end of the day it's still like nothing uh to poker's complexity like poker is much more complex <laughs> yeah it's similar to magic i'm guessing yeah okay yeah. not that i'm very familiar with either but it sounds yeah. like uh for I, sure I've, I've observed enough magic the gathering i guess to to see a comparison um, okay, so like as you're rising through the ranks then on global, are you are you in Florida at this point? Uh, I moved to Florida when I was 18 or 19. Uh, I, I, as soon as I turned 18, I started like immediately like taking trips out to Florida and taking trips out to like Choctaw. And I even went to London. I was traveling everywhere I could to play live because mm-hmm. the scene in Illinois, like, I mean, there was poker, but it wasn't like enough. Yeah. Obviously for what I wanted to do. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I was traveling out immediately from turning 18 to all these live stops. Okay. Um, and then at what point did you decide to create a stable? Okay. Uh, I start, I think I started a stable in like a... For those that don't know, I ran a cash game stable. I don't anymore. It's like out of business recently. Not out of business, but shut down, I suppose. Uh, I started a stable a couple of years ago. And I had a friend who had a stable. And I saw that he was doing well. And I was like, oh, wow, like... I guess I could do this too. Just let's just stake all the boys. Sure. But uh running a stable is hard. It's very hard. Yeah. Uh so I think I I remember starting like I was looking at two plus two like Discord servers, various like forms, getting friends, friend of friends. Got like 
started staking like 12, 13, 14 people. Landon was one of those people. Yeah. Uh, all those years ago. <laughs> Two whole years ago. <laughs> yeah. Ran a stable for a while. Let, let me probe into this a little bit because I think it's interesting. First of all, I think uh, for all the viewers who don't have experience in this, running a stable is a fucking chore. And yes, that is, sure. that's minimizing uh, a, a lot of what you're putting into it. So not only are you the financier who's putting in all the capital, but you're also the coach who's in charge of ensuring that your your horses are good enough and maintaining. You're also the, the one who does all the hiring and firing. So you have to be very critical on everybody at the same time. But at the same token, you're also the support system, right? So you're kind of their mental game coach. You're the one who is making them feel okay about variants and letting them know their spot is secure as long as they're doing what's being asked of them. Finally, you're in charge of actually structuring a business. So you have to have some sort of business plan intact. So uh, I, I guess like combing through all of those, let's start from the most complex because at this point, I'm guessing you're what, 20? Yeah. 19? 19. Okay. I would assume you have about zero real, real world knowledge at this point in startups. Yes. But you're an intelligent kid. You've, you've kind of been through the ranks of two different games and you've been successful in both. You're smart enough to network and lean on other people. What did the actual financials and the business structure look like? Well, I would find people who had like some sort of reference or were already winning in some way. People, so I had some people who already like had bankrolls but kind of just wanted to be coached. So I was like pretty selective on who I'd even pick, obviously, because you need to avoid scams. Sure. Uh, I would start most of them at like $0.25, cent, $0.50. Cent. These would be like $0.50 cent dollar players. So this was like a small mid-stakes like stable. Mm -hmm. it, it was a lot of work, a lot more than I first anticipated, and that's kind of why I stopped doing it. But So step one is basically teach them all pre-flop give them all preflop ranges for the games that they're playing, mm -hmm. which at those stakes is like really high rake. So you need to get like, teach them how to play in environments like that. Uh, teach them from the flop, turn, river, like cohesive strategy. It's very, it's very time consuming. It's very difficult to teach like 12 people at a time. It's like right. almost impossible to do like a great job. So I would just make video, I mean, I would just make videos like over various different uh, spots in poker just do what I can. I eventually, I did a uh, hire like another coach partway through because I was just having difficulty. And uh, I would say that the stable was a success though. Like most of the players I had back then are still like professional poker players to this day, like playing two, five and up, but most of them at least. But uh, yeah, it was a, I learned a lot doing this stable. It's definitely not as easy. I like going at, when you person starts a stable, they probably think it's going to be like easy money. They're yeah. just going to have a bunch of like, they're just going to create a bunch of yourselves like very easily, but yeah. that's just not what happens. Like people don't get staked unless there's like a reason for them getting staked. Also information is like kind of non-transferable. Yeah. There are things that you just kind of intuit that uh, isn't necessarily going to transfer over to your, yeah. to your students all that well. And you're going to have to go through this rigmarole of explaining something that is just very inherent to you. Yeah. Yeah. It's very difficult and you can't really do that. Or, yeah. I mean, you can do that, but not to hundred percent. Not at scale. Yeah. yeah. Not at scale either. Um, what ratio would you say as far as like successes versus failures go, um, for every 12 person I would batch say, you had? I would say like 70% success rate. That's great. Uh, That's yeah. really great. Yeah. It was like a profitable stable and mo most stables that I don't, that I know of are not profitable. So I'm just happy to be profitable. Mm -hmm. Although I will say that that money would have done better served just throwing it into Bitcoin. Sure. Of course. But high so, or even like. Maybe even like S and P five hundred. I mean, honestly, like, like the majority of the money we've made playing poker, even yeah. over the last however many years, would have just been better served thrown into Bitcoin. Yeah, like these yeah. returns are just unheard of. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, that might be a bad example, but uh, stable, lots of work. Very, uh, maybe not worth it for the gains. It's very difficult to do a good job running a stable. Do you think it helped you as a player? as a person, as a businessman? Uh, yes, to player and businessman, for sure. For sure. Uh, just teaching people poker and just going over and reviewing things yourself that you're going to teach another person, mm -hmm. that just makes you sharper yourself. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's good. And like when I was doing poker out loud, me explaining my thought process or why I'm doing something, just that's something I'm more used to doing. 
But as far as like your own personal happiness, probably detracted more than added. Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. That I mean, that's basically why I stopped it. Is uh, I got down to having just uh, like three of my better players, and I was just like, okay, I'm not going to accept any new students now. Yeah. And then when they all go on or graduate, mm-hmm. as we say, uh, then I'm done, and that's yeah. what happened. That makes sense. So hopefully, Landon was one of those three. He was. Yes. Okay. Tell me a little bit about your guys' relationship, because despite the fact that you and I actually met in a live game, mm-hmm. uh, I knew you indirectly through Landon. Yeah. So uh, I met Landon through, I was friends with, uh, I think his ex-coach, ex-backer, for whatever reason. Uh, he was joining my stable, and uh, Landon just became a really good friend of mine. Uh, met him in person. We both lived in Florida, traveled to the live stops together. I was staking for live and online. Uh, I would say it was probably my best student that came through my stable. Uh, definitely the biggest success story, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, kid has a lot of talent, a lot of heart, lots of heart. <laughs> uh, definitely has all the heart. Yeah, yeah. Um, just a good friend. Yeah. What it's do crazy. you What do you think of his heads up game? That's the real question on the. Oh man, <laughs> he's. Uh, I think he's got the edge against the Bill Perkins with yeah. the handicap. Yeah. Uh, is he like the best heads up player in the world? No, but I think he definitely, I think he should have the good end of the stick on that one. We're all hoping so, Jeremiah. (laughs) Heavily invested in the young man. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I see it as he's one of those kids who really takes challenges to heart. Mm -hmm. Um, when he first made the challenge, I was annoyed because it just seems like a bunch of false bravado being projected over social media and you know, I think Bill is not a great heads-up player, obviously, but he has the availability to good training and could potentially get better. And nine mm-hmm. big blind per hundred spot felt big. It, it felt big. It felt almost insulting to Bill. Uh, but I think it's one of those things where it's like with Landon, if if that number was very close when he made the bet, he'll just bust his ass to ensure that it's not close by the time the bet goes off. Mm-hmm. And I think it takes a special breed to want to work that hard for something so intangible, right? Because at the end of the day, it's only 20,000 hands. Yeah. And he could just run somewhat below EV and, you know, the the end tangible result could just be negative. But he, and I think this is true of Chris as well, and from everything I know about you, I, I would say this is probably true too. You guys are very driven by like purpose and process rather than tangible goals. Like, I don't see either any one of the three of you ever saying to yourself, like, I have a number in mind, and if I reach it, I'll never play another hand, right? No. <laughs> it's the exact opposite. It's just like, and, and it's not even like I have a stake level in mind that if I reach it, I never want to play higher or anything like that. It's just always this constant hunger to, like, learn and grow within the confines of this game, I guess. And uh, for better or for worse, Landon, I think issues himself these personal challenges to ensure that at no point does he become complacent, which makes some sense to me because over the last six to 12 months, his ego should be unable to get through a door right now, right? It's just like socially speaking, uh, I don't think anybody's been propped up more in the last six to 12 months with less tangible results, but nobody questions how good he is, right? It's just like, it's very clear that there are a few people working as hard and uh, being able to exude the same knowledge as him. He's he is working quite hard. He's been playing uh, heads up against some of the best players in the world, studying constantly. Um, yeah, he's taking his yeah. lumps, which is so critical to this process. I feel like he had never lost prior to this. Yeah, like yesterday he lost nine buy-ins. He's just like, so this is what it's like, huh? It's like, <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> like we swing. Yeah, you know, I know you definitely went on some big swings over the last six oh, to twelve, man. right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, people don't realize how sick variance is in poker. Really, like yeah. if you're not like a professional poker player and you haven't like put years in playing in the game, especially in like higher variance game types, like, I mean, variance in poker is really just something crazy. Like you can lose, you can lose like forty or fifty buy-ins, and it can just be not your fault at all. Right. So, like that's sick. Well, particularly. Uh, you know, I think you and I share this in common. When we're when we're playing in this WSO pool, mm-hmm. we're ranging in stakes from like five ten up to one hundred two hundred. Yeah. At any given day, for any given hand sample, right? So it's just like, if that collection of a thousand hands 
where the world conspires against you happens at one two instead of it at five ten that's the you're never recouping man you're just never recouping you go on a quarter million dollar downswing at 100 200 and you have to go back and grind out the five ten stakes it's like that's a year's return yeah it sucks it sucks and it happens and there's nothing you can really do about it yeah you just play uh what's available to you like uh in 2020 i think i made like four or five times more money than 2019 but in 2018 i won more big blinds right so it's just like yeah that makes perfect sense to me Uh, (laughs) it's just how it is (laughs) yeah kind of the same thing i had one of my absolute best years last year and i was forced to play almost exclusively online Mm -hmm. and i just remember the six-figure swings occurring like regularly yeah and it's just like well this is insane i'm playing a quarter of the stakes that i'm used to playing live but the the volume is so increased and it's so hit or miss as far as like how often the game you know we'd play every day for like 12 days in a row and then you take a month and a half without there being a game yeah that's that's about where uh wsop at least has been at the yeah. last couple months have been very dead yeah but you know we have a online series we're coming right around the corner july i think this is going to be i think it's gonna be big booming it's gonna be big yeah i'm quite excited for this online month and of live of course but the online month is gonna be good i'm more excited for live of course but i think this online month i I mean obviously i have like very nostalgic memories from last year yeah me too because we were just like right in the thick of it and i had a really great month and 50 100 was just going all the fucking time it's like you bust a bracelet event and suddenly you're just like firing high stakes online i don't know everything about it was just like really good and now we have time to prep for it right it's not just getting sprung Mm -hmm. upon us like last year was kind of God bless WSOP, man. They were they were just doing the best they could. Every month it was just like, oh, well, this thing's not ending. Let's fire out another series. <laughs> like it's a circuit series this month, and I guess we'll do some bracelet events. And you know, I'm sure that there was a lot of uh, back and forth that went into the decision making of whether or not they wanted to dilute bracelets, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But man, like last year, the buzz around it was incredible. Like, you know, they they had that team of Tuckman and guest streaming the final tables every night jeff platt would stream all the way down to the final table it was like the first time that i actually felt there was a coordinated effort into uh shining a spotlight on the poker community where everything was all in one place you know if you take a look at poker media as it stands it's difficult to keep up with anything right because what source do you go to and then what exactly are they covering right nobody's nobody's reporting on any of the big high stakes cash games nobody's reporting on any of the the i guess circuit events across the nation it's just whatever's biggest at the moment right so if it's triton then that's what they cover if it's uh the the aria high rollers then that's what they cover if it's wpd that's what they cover but it seems difficult to finally just have one and i mean you know it kind of did remind me of the summer in that regard which you don't have experience with it but man i'm telling you it's something special it's like Christmas for poker players. I'm very excited. That's, I'm just going to be playing like 10 hours a day. It's going to be great. You're going to be waiting in line for... Oh, I got to get up early. You got to start the games then. They never break. Right? They never break. Oh. That 1020 at Bellagio will never break. Sick. Yeah. I, I mean, I've tried to do double duty a lot. So I guess as far as my trajectory goes, my first World Series was 2006. I moved here in 08. And uh, I've played every year since. So 2009 and 10... I tried to play like a mix of high stakes cash and tournaments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't really rolled enough to play an entire series. And uh, I, like you, felt like cash was my bread and butter. So I would play like 10 events and then 10, 20 every opportunity that I had in between. And man, I must have spent an equal amount of time just like at Bellagio waiting for a seat as I did uh, actually grinding for that summer. That sucks. It was lucrative, sucks. but like it's tough. It's tough whenever. Every hour you put in, you're actually only getting 30 minutes of play when it's when it's all said and done, you know? Yeah, that's not good. Not good. <laughs> but I do think that there are some advantages uh, that you possess that I didn't then, and that's that bigger games will run, and those pools are very small. So, you know, if there's 40 on the list for 1020, there may only be four on the list for 100, 200. And the fact that, like, you could just sit is probably worth a whole lot to you, um, both from a time standpoint and a money-making standpoint yeah yeah that's kind of how it works there's not too many people with playing the biggest games but i'm just i'm excited to play the biggest games <laughs> do you play anything else omaha uh, or anything like that no no i mean i used to dabble a bit in omaha but 
Not well. Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of always feel like it's too late, but I'm sure it's not. It's probably know. not, but it's also just like, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of the same. It's tough because a lot of the games, a lot of the good games are turning to round round. Yeah. Um, just because people want to gamble and have a chance. It's crazy though. Like what I find is that the people who benefit the most from the high higher variance of Omaha play tighter and more conservatively and like aren't utilizing the 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 i guess closed gap of skill to their benefit yeah so it's just like i don't understand you're losing all this money and hold them because you're getting ran over and then you go to omaha and you just don't play any hands and it makes sense because it's fucking eight-handed and like nobody on earth should want to play eight-handed four-card poker but it's terrible anything above six oh god it's torture it's really bad yeah it's (laughs) it's absolutely brutal but uh yeah, I don't know. I, I still no, no limit's just always gonna reign supreme, I think. Um It's just the best game. It really is. It's a beautiful game. It really Any is. Any bet size. You gotta balance out multiple sizes. Yeah, you get to call people with King High sometimes. You don't get to do that in PLO. You can't do that in PLO. That's suicide. No. Calling yeah. with two pair half the time is just suicide. That's just such a needed game, I feel like. Yeah. Most of the time I end up playing it. But Yeah, I think that that's uh a little bit why short deck never caught on uh-huh. over here is just that uh, it became very apparent to the losing players very quickly that all hands are good, and it's difficult to decipher which ones aren't good enough. You know what I mean? So it's just like they just found themselves calling away all of their money, where at least in no limit, they'd rather fold away all their money. Uh, And I think it protects them a little bit better in a game where they just don't make a pair so often or don't make two pair plus so often, whatever. Mm -hmm. I never played short deck, but... I had a little run over a 48-hour span. (laughs) Put together a nice uh, 20k to 600k run up on accident. Didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Just uh, <laughs> the gods blessed us that day. I don't know. I've, yeah, it's a crazy game. I hear you're just supposed to shove like 100 antis when you have something. Yeah, you're just supposed to shove. Yeah, it's wild. Like <laughs> equity denial is so huge in the game, but it's also so difficult to just ever be that far ahead. So yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's a weird, weird uh, game. It's fascinating. I think it's a little bit easier to understand proper strategy than no limit once you study it. But, um, you know, that's also what creates the larger skill gap. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what are some of your other, pa- I already know the answer to this. It's a loaded question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What, what are some of your other passions outside of gambling? Uh, I mean, I have seven guinea pigs, right? You're a papa. Yes. I do have seven, guinea, uh, if you will. seven guinea pigs. So I, unlike my peers, I have some semblance of responsibility. How how did you end up with seven exactly? Uh, well, we had one. Uh, they're not really supposed to be alone, so we went to the pet store. We got it. We got two more girls to go with our girl. One of them was a boy. Mm. A couple months later, we have seven guinea pigs. Right. So now the guinea pigs have a whole room. It seems lucky uh, that you only had four babies. Yeah, they could have more. They sure. could have more, but four. I don't know. It's kind of average. Oh okay. Uh, yeah. So now I've got a. Got things to be responsible for. Sometimes I think about my bankroll management a few years ago. Can't do that anymore. <laughs> it's off the table. Right, right. You got to be a little bit more Old conservative man. to feed the kids. Old man now. Yeah, I understand. That makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how does it work with the guineas? Do you have to separate the men from the... Yeah. So, I, I mean, I have three different cage setups. There's okay. like a... There's a neutered male with three girls okay. there's a girl on her own because she doesn't get along with any other guinea pigs okay they'll start fighting and then there's the boys so despite the fact that so, they're social creatures this one yes. poor guinea is just yeah. off on its own so sometimes they're weird they don't okay. like companionship sure i hey <laughs> i can relate man yeah i yeah. this is my spirit animal let me know if she needs to be adopted <laughs> all oh, right God. all right uh what's the plan moving forward with the guineas i i know that you were uh i don't know if you were joking or not but talking about starting a guinea rescue uh i mean mildly joking but the way crypto is going it could be a possibility someday okay crypto's going quite high going yeah. to the moon yeah. uh you know just have the guineas not hopefully no more babies what is a what does a rescue entail like people who bought them as pets and don't want them anymore or? yes okay people or people like me who got the wrong guinea cut type of gender from the pet store who end up with like seven or eight guinea pigs and they just can't support them because it's kind of expensive to just take care of like seven or eight of them. Is it? Yeah, kind of. Kind of. I mean, well, they just eat a lot of veggies. Okay. A lot of food. Yeah. Uh, you need like hay for them constantly. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Vet bills. Vet bills can be expensive. Sure. 
So rescue is just uh, cleaning a lot of cages. I assume these days. Yeah, yeah. I spend a lot of time cleaning the cage. When are you gonna hire out for that process? No, I can't. It's like it's like cathartic. You like lose a bunch of money and then you just go like do stuff with the guineas. Oh my god, that sounds miserable. No, no, it's great. It's great. <laughs> do you do you have them out of the cage? Like, do they get in the ball or anything like that? Uh, sometimes you'll take them out. Yeah, hang out with them. Yeah, like yeah. is there an exercise process? No, no, they just run around. Okay. I like to run around. Uh, that's about it for hobbies. So much. Uh, just well, you're that. You're in a you're in a current workout bet, no? Yeah, I'm a. Oh yeah, that's true. I have a workout prop bet with a friend of mine. It's a couple versus couple, or my couple, me and my girlfriend versus mm-hmm. them. Yeah, in a workout bet, trying to get healthy. Are are you are you uh, diligently ensuring that you guys don't fail? Yes. Yes. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna crush it. We're okay. gonna crush it. We're locked in for like three months, I think. Okay. What's the we're like three terms. weeks in. What are the terms? Uh, it's just uh, each couple has to work out five out of seven days a week. Okay. Anytime you don't, it costs a hundred dollars. Okay. Per uh, per person. So mm-hmm. small stakes. No, small stakes, no, like but... actual um, like weight loss or anything like that. Not really. No, just forty-five minutes, five Trying times to a week. Habit. Yeah, because you get the habit. Low stakes, friendly bet. Do you enjoy it? Yeah, yeah, it's fun. You feel good after. Yeah. I've never been one for health. I like. Don't eat well, uh, don't meditate, don't really work out. Sure. I'm like some poker players are all about that stuff. Well, that's because we're all old now. <laughs> when we were 21, we also didn't meditate mm-hmm. and didn't do shit. My entire community, whenever they were 21, uh, all of the 30-somethings now, 10, 15 years ago, they were all stoned out of their minds, eating Cheetos for every meal, <laughs> not ever touching a weight, not ever running anywhere. Like They were disgusting individuals. <laughs> <laughs> and then guys like yeah. Jason Kuhn like rose to prominence and it was just like, hey, this guy's fucking good and he's doing all these life things, right? And now I'm 30 something and I feel like I'm gonna have a heart attack and I don't have any money and you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. eventually the failure cycle catches up to people, I think. Yeah. This is a difficult realm to survive for a decade plus, constantly living on a thread of of variance going one way or the other, dictating whether or not you have six figures or zero and uh not try to take control of the controllables right so it's like when it comes to like health phys- uh physical fitness and and mental capacities i think those are three realms that like we desperately desperately have to cling to control because at the end of the day after we make our decision at the table and the money goes in the middle it's not up to us who gets the pot yeah it's very much out of our control a lot of things in poker so yeah I agree with that wholeheartedly. Those it's are really, great really habits. a psychotic game that we've. Uh... It's a beautiful game. <laughs> it's it a beautiful is. game. You, I, sure. I, I love your youthful exuberance uh, when it comes to this. Like you really are fascinated by the sheer chaos that this game presents. Yeah, I mean, it's been six years. I've dedicated. I mean, my goal at poker is always to be the best player in the world. But what that really means be the best no limit hold'em player in the world. Uh, I mean, it's just a beautiful game. It's something you can be uh, obsessed with for many many years and you're still like learning new things every day yeah uh there's definitely like a lot of opportunity out there so just got to capture as much as the opportunity as you can do you think that you're gonna shift more of your focus to live now that it's opening back up and stakes are getting a little bit bigger yeah yeah it's looking to be that way i mean i think online poker will always go there's like phases where maybe there won't be anything for a few months but then like there might be like some big action Mm-hmm. and uh it goes in phases but live is much more consistent uh i'm sure i'll always play online but things are looking towards live i think in yeah. the next few years for sure is there a stake level that you wouldn't be comfortable playing i, I mean if there was i just wouldn't play it or i would sell action so that it well i know you would sell action that's yeah. why i'm asking oh okay so like would 2k 4k make you yes a little cringy yes 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 you're just in there <laughs> you don't give a shit i mean yeah i mean i've never the biggest games i've played are probably like a two four or Maybe the occasional eight, but one, two, four or something. But uh, how much of yourself would you have to have in two K, four K, where it actually like made you feel something when you sat down? Uh, ten percent, I suppose. I mean, I still get excited for two hundred, four hundred. You don't okay. get to play it every day. No, that that's good. That's good. That that means something. <laughs> you don't really don't get to play hundred, two hundred, or two four every day. Right. But uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I. Uh, it was it was a weird thing for me. Um, you know, I've I've played probably a hell of a lot more live than you have. Mm -hmm. And there's this weird psychological thing that occurs in a live environment, particularly a loose and or jovial one, 
where very quickly you forget what stakes you're playing, right? Like you kind of get swept up in game flow where it's splashy, things are happening, like cold calling of three bets, 5X opens, uh, double straddles, like all this stuff. And at some point, if you're confident in what you're doing and the game plan that you set forth, you kind of just like forget about what's at stake. And I feel like there was a seven year span where I was playing in Ivy's room pretty consistently that I just never really understood the magnitude of the stakes that we were playing and how big of a piece of it I actually had. Because like there were days where I personally was suffering through like high six figure swings and it didn't even, it, it just didn't register. You know, you showed up to play 100, 200, a couple special players showed up. Now all of a sudden we're playing three, six, 12, sometimes 24. And it's just like the new norm. You're just like, well, this is the game that I'm in now. And instead of having 100K exposure today, I have a half a million. And that's just the way it's going to be. And now, like, looking back on it, now that I'm a little bit more further removed, like, you know, you kind of said 100, 200, 200, 400 is, like, a lot more rare these days. We really have to mm. seek these games out. Looking back on it, man, it's just, like, what a sick, sick world I was involved in for such a period of time where my mind was, like, just totally <laughs> numb to it all. <laughs> I mean, those are some pretty insane stakes. There was there was a game that I played that I showed up. It was supposed to be two four or sorry four eight, and it was uh, started as one k two k and then became one k two k four k. And you kind of like you don't feel it as much because everybody's fifty blinds deep. You know, like the average stack is like two hundred k. But at the same token, it's just like, what are we doing? This is insane. I, like a few years ago, I was playing five ten ten twenty. This is absolute madness. Like, how sick is everybody at this table? that we need to be gambling for houses. But especially with the rise of crypto and and the quote unquote free money that's out there for some people who are sharp, I don't mm -hmm. think it's gonna stop. I think we're gonna see like a televised 5K, 10K game. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I bet actually, I'd like to bet on that. It's crazy. Yeah. Crypto, I mean, so many poker players are just involved with crypto. Yeah. I mean, really, because you have to be like- Oh well, yeah, we need something to protect ourselves, right? Yeah. Like, we need some sort of security. And this definitely offers the lowest hanging fruit. And a lot of us were just like lucky enough or sharp enough to get in when the prices were reasonable. Mm -hmm. but yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for the landscape. Um, I'm gonna ask you one last question and then we, we, can, we can leave it on this note. Tell me a little bit, uh, because we're, we're, as much as I feel like uh, your maturity level is on the same as mine, we're very, very far apart as far as like generationally speaking. So I probably view the community a lot differently than you do. What would you say your outlook for poker as a whole and then maybe more specifically live and online is for like the next five to 10 years? Uh, I would say that, uh, I mean, online poker is going to be looking probably nearing dead in five to 10 years. I mean, it's tough to say. I mean, it'll always be around. It's tough to say like which stakes will be around, whether like, I'm sure it's always going to be around, but maybe like 2550 won't be. Uh, what do you think is the cause of that? Just to press a little uh, bit. The, a rise of like solvers and AI and all of these things that just make the games tougher. This knowledge being like more accessible and people using their solvers in real time when that's against the rules, but the sites can't really enforce it. Yeah, I, I think the animidity of it all is the biggest problem, right? Yeah. It's not just that the tech exists, but it's that the tech can exist undetected yeah. so well. Yeah, I mean, how could they know that if you have a second computer with your setup? Like, how are they going to know? Right. And you can always just, like, play a hand bad once in a while or something. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be tough. Like, the future for online is going to be tough, like, five to ten years. It's going to be tough. I wonder, uh, I mean, it just comes down to, like, how well the sites can police the games. I mean, how many recreationals there are playing, of course. Sure. But, uh, I mean, for, um, but for live, at least live, I'm very optimistic about, I think live is going to be a, like, all-time highs coming back from covid mm -hmm. people really like to play poker i mean things are just gonna be looking good for live poker i think do you think do you think live cash can sustain uh can sustain like as is so you know 40 40 big blind minimum buy-in somewhere between 100 and uncapped maximum buy-in uh one to two big blinds and rake uh with you know two blinds do, do you think that structure survives yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't see why not. Maybe there'll be big blind antes. 
mm. uh, more commonly in like the lower stakes games they already do in like the high stakes games, but it's not really a thing in like five ten yeah or two five. Maybe that'll become more of a thing. Maybe slight alterations to the game could happen, but it'll probably just stay the same for a long time. Mm. Uh, yeah, and online poker does have some good things going on. Like in America, I think they're trying to like merge uh, Michigan and pennsylvania with nevada and new jersey yeah so that'd be great if that happened and if more states got legalized that'd be great if that happened so yeah i don't know but the future of poker is fairly bright overall i would say like the opportunity to make like a lot of money is still there yeah if you work hard i mean it's tough to make millions a year but could you really work really hard and make like 300k a year like that's for sure alive like you can do that and i think poker's fairly healthy yeah i i think i agree with almost all of your your thoughts i am completely in alignment with your vision for online i think it just has some big challenges that people are kind of brushing under the rug at the moment um and some of that's a byproduct of you know today's the anniversary of black friday i think a lot of people are pushing for regulation so they're much more concerned with lobbyists and you know just finding a way to operate legally mm -hmm. than they are with the actual security and, and game integrity um, and you know, it's just difficult because in a realm where everybody, at least from an incentive perspective is pushed towards making the best decision for themselves and themselves only, like it's every man for themselves. Uh, these seedy ways of making money are heavily incentivized and they're not scrutinized nearly enough. So I do think that there are big challenges there. I think live is... I don't know, man, as a cash game player, I've just seen it dilute so much, you know, uh, seeing the big game disappear from Aria is a telltale sign of worry to me. Um, seeing these games go private is also a little bit worrisome. I think maybe a little bit less. So, you know, it's, it's up to each individual to find ways to navigate that realm, whether it's starting their own game or, uh, being affable enough to, to get into games. Um, there's something protective about that. And I think that that's okay. But I think that the biggest challenge is just like the overall structure. People are getting bored. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people are learning how to play better preflop and playing good preflop in a general sense means playing very tight. But you'll die of old age if you play that tight live, right? It's like, it's, it's the reason why my strategy looks the way it does. And I, in some part, it's the reason why I'm accepted into so many good spots that others wouldn't be. It's just mm -hmm. like the desire to VPIP twice as much as the next guy is my way of increasing volume. And yeah, it increases variance along the same lines, but uh, hopefully you retain some sort of win rate over the course of that. Most people aren't gonna be that risk of, um, th that willing to engage in risk. Most people are gonna be risk averse. They're gonna look at a chart and they're gonna say, okay, I play 8% nine-handed under the gun and you know, so on and so forth and they're gonna get bored. Mm -hmm. So I do think adding things like antis, third blinds, um, doing more bomb pots uh oh, you know, bomb pots are the best bro i can't believe there aren't just like straight bomb pot games yet there should be there really should be texas is amazing man every half hour when the dealer changes double board bomb pot <laughs> good luck running that through a solve nine-handed split split pot game where you're trying to figure out the best way to go high low or, or to scoop i guess um and i guess to to double down on that point tournaments are just gonna fucking blow up man yeah the, yeah. the barrier of entry is so low yeah, all stacked ups too, like, yeah. keeps you entertained. Yeah. You can always hit a big score. I mean, tournaments are always going to be around. Yeah, sure. I just think that they are going to explode. I think we can see the high roller circuit maybe die. Um, and honestly, I hope that it doesn't because it only helps promote the growth because you get this small collection of elites that think they're too good to play open events. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, you get this large collection of entry-level players that look up to those elites and say, this is great. I don't have to compete against them. So there's almost this segregation factor that takes place and it's good for everybody. It's good for those elite players because they get to make more money in a, in a, in a nosebleed realm where not anybody can just come in. And then it's good for all of the entry level players who don't have to have their win rate just absolutely chopped down by some of the best in the world. Uh, I hate to say that because I'm a purist. I love cash. I think that like it's the most creative form of poker I think especially once you start getting super deep, you know, 500 plus blinds effective, the mistakes that compound are just insane. And like, there's so much more room to, to have loss leaders baked into your game. You know, if you give up 
a tenth of a big blind pre, what the hell is the difference if a guy's making a 500 big blind error on the river? You know, it's just, it's, it's kind of insignificant. Um, but I worry that we're going to go the other way. So rather than minimum buy-ins increasing to like maybe 100 bigs or 150 bigs or whatever, I'm worried that we're going to shift the opposite direction where like caps start to be implemented on even high stake games and minimum buy-ins maybe stay the same or reduced to like 20 blinds. And we see more of a tournament type strategy being applied in the cash realm. That would be bad. Be so I would brutal. not like that. No, that'd be so brutal. I hate that. <laughs> All right, man. I uh, I really appreciate you joining me. I really appreciate you playing Poker Out Loud. Uh, for anybody who wants to see more from Jeremiah, be sure to tune in to Season 5 Poker Out Loud on the sub-site. Um, that's going to do it for us this week. Pretty sure we're going to have a special guest again next week, but I don't want to announce it because it hasn't been confirmed yet. Uh, and I may actually be doing it from Florida. Are you going back home? No, no. I'm going to be staying here. Really? Yeah, I'm not going to the events in Florida. It's going to be like infinite in the prize pool, man. I know, I know. You can't do it. You got guineas to take care of. I know, I got kids. <laughs> that's probably, that's it. That's kind of the reason why, actually, yeah. Yeah. Someone's got to take care of them. Well, I'm going to go fire. I'm yeah. going to play the main, I'm going to play the 25K. Yeah. Oh, the uh, 25Ks, they're good. Yeah. They're good. Extremely. There's a 50K, but I'm going to miss it because uh, I'm playing Poker After Dark on the same day. Nice. nice. So, you know. That's better anyway. Much, much, much better. better. If I'm going to lose 50,000, it better be to like some random reg who i have no idea how they play and i call off with king high in a spot where they only have quads and uh i feel good about losing money that way i definitely don't want to go down there play a 50k tournament and just bubble yeah that, that would uh yeah and poker after dark is just so so much fun oh, so much fun i really do enjoy it there all right that's gonna wrap it for us thank you guys so much for tuning in we'll see you guys all next week <laughs>